Hi everyone, welcome back to our podcast. Thank you so much for your support and we'll jump straight into it today. So we're continuing in the Gospel of John and the passage we're looking at that you would hear if you went to Mass today is from John chapter 11 verse 45 to 56. Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went to tell the Pharisees what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting. Here is this man working all these signs, they said, and what action are we taking? If we let him go on in this way, everybody will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy the holy place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said, You do not seem to have grasped the situation at all. You fail to see that it is better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. He did not speak in his own person. It was as high priest that he made this prophecy that Jesus was to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather together in unity the scattered children of God. From that day they were determined to kill him. So Jesus no longer went about openly among the Jews, but left the district for a town called Ephraim, in the country bordering on the desert, and stayed there with his disciples. The Jewish Passover drew near, and many of the country people who had gone up to Jerusalem to purify themselves looked out for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood about in the temple, What do you think? Will he come to the festival or not? So as always, we want to start by considering considering what has just happened. So just before this, earlier in John chapter 11, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and he's the brother of Mary and Martha. So we start our passage today at verse 45, and it says, Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, so that's Mary, the sister of Lazarus, they'd come to be with her in her mourning, because they knew that Lazarus had died and they'd come to accompany her. But they had seen what Jesus did and believed in him. So a lot of the Jews who just happened to be there out of family obligation, they ended up witnessing this miracle of Jesus rising Lazarus from the dead and they end up believing in him. So that's good. But then there's, in fact, that's the outcome that Jesus had prayed for. Remember, just before he raises Lazarus, he prays that people would come to God as a result of this miracle. And so his prayer is answered here. But some of them, so some of the spectators, went to the Pharisees. So that's the local Jewish authorities in the town of Bethany. To tell them what Jesus had done. So some of the Jews are obviously loyal to the Pharisees. And they know that the Pharisees will want to hear about Jesus' latest miracle. So they go and tell the Pharisees. They then go to the chief priests and the Pharisees. And we're probably talking about in Jerusalem now. Bethany is just next to Jerusalem. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, what's the difference? Well, the chief priests are those in this time period who are in charge of everything relating to the temple and to divine worship. And the Pharisees are the teachers of the law. Together, they kind of governed the Jerusalem society. So they called a meeting, that's what our translation says, but a more literal translation is they gathered the council. So we're talking here about the Sanhedrin, they're gathering together the official ruling body in Jerusalem. 
That's the official group of people that makes decisions on behalf of all the Jews in Israel. So in the Sanhedrin, there was some priests, some aristocrats and religious experts. So they all had different jobs in society, but together they made up the ruling council. They had religious and political authority. So any decisions they made basically applied to all of Israel. So here's what they say to each other. Here is this man working all these signs, and what action are we taking? If we let him go on in this way, everybody will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy the holy place and our nation. So the the Jewish leaders here, correctly, they perceive that they do have a very fragile relationship with Rome. Already some of the Jews have tried to uprise against the Romans, and the Romans aren't too happy about it. And also there's been a few so-called messiahs who have come and claimed to be the messiah, they've developed a following, and those messiahs have tried to lead political rebellions against Rome. And the Jews don't want that to happen again, so they're concerned that things might get out of hand with Jesus. If he gathers too much of a following, people think he's the messiah, it's going to cause a massive uprising. And they think that this time, Rome is going to get fed up with it, they're going to get tired of Israel causing them problems, and the Romans are going to come in and destroy them. So the Sanhedrin here is concerned for their own nation. Now, ironically, the Romans did exactly that. Eventually, in 70 AD, they did destroy Jerusalem and the temple. But actually, it's because they put Jesus to death. So the Romans destroyed Jerusalem because the Jews put Jesus to death. Whereas here, the Sanhedrin thinks that if they put Jesus to death it will stop the Romans from coming and destroying them. But in fact, it causes the opposite. So that's quite an element of irony there. Verse 49, Caiaphas, the high priest that year. So we know from history, this man is called Joseph Caiaphas. He reigns AD 18 to 36. And the high priest at this time is the highest authority in Jerusalem. He carries the most authority out of any Jew in Jerusalem and in fact in Israel. And he was considered to be very wise. In fact, some Jews believed that whoever the high priest was, they also had the gift of prophecy. So there was this belief that prophecy was attached to the office of high priest. This is the same Caiaphas who would later interrogate Jesus after he's arrested. So he plays quite an important role in the last week of Jesus' life. So he says to the council, and he's in charge of the council, you do not seem to have grasped the situation at all or other translations have it as even more blunt, you know nothing at all. So Caiaphas, as the high priest, he knows what needs to be done, even if the others haven't worked it out yet. He says, You fail to see that it is better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. So Caiaphas determines that although it's usually not good for a man to die... It's actually better in this case that Jesus does die, because if he does, that will save the nation, the Romans won't come. So he'd much prefer that rather than the whole nation being destroyed. That's his reasoning as to why they should kill Jesus. So Caiaphas here is using a kind of moral reasoning that we might call consequentialism, or it goes by other names in philosophy as well. But the idea is you determine the morality or the right or wrongness of an action by its overall outcome. That's the reasoning that Caiaphas is using. We can kill Jesus because it's going to produce a good outcome. Now, the church has consistently condemned that that's not how we should work out what's right and wrong. But then John, the author, 
um, adds in this interesting bit of commentary. He did not speak in his own person. It was as high priest that he made this prophecy. So John tells us that in these very words that Caiaphas speaks, uh, it is better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. John tells us that in fact is a prophecy. So God is speaking through the high priest Caiaphas and God is adding new prophetic significance to Caiaphas's words without Caiaphas even realizing it. So God is putting in this prophecy into Caiaphas's mouth so that although what Caiaphas speaks is true in terms of it's better politically for Jesus to die, there's also a prophecy element where Jesus, through his death, is going to save the entire nation by his death on the cross. And as I said before, there was this Jewish belief at the time based on Exodus 28 verse 30 and also Numbers chapter 27 verse 21 that the high priest did have the gift of prophecy. And apparently what we see here confirms that. At least in this case, the high priest speaks a genuine prophecy of God. And John says, when Caiaphas spoke these words, that Jesus was in fact to die for the nation and not for the nation only. So Jesus would die for all people, not just for the Jews, to gather together in unity the scattered children of God. And that's quite a beautiful phrase that John uses, to gather together in unity the scattered children of God. So again, John is saying that through Caiaphas's words, he's predicting what Jesus is going to bring about through his death on the cross. So when Jesus dies on the cross, sinful man, which had become estranged from God, would be brought back into unity as God's children. And that's all nations scattered across the Mediterranean or through the Roman Empire and beyond would be drawn back into God's fold. And as John chapter 10 says, this is a reference to this idea that Jesus has come to ensure that there's one flock and one shepherd. So it's a link back to other aspects that Jesus brings out elsewhere in John's gospel. Jesus has come to become the good shepherd that calls all people into his flock and through his death on the cross, that's what he accomplishes. If you think about it, this is quite a fascinating verse, isn't it? The high priest spoke this prophecy. So even though the high priest Caiaphas was committing a great sin by planning to put the Messiah to death, he's actually doing something terrible that God would not approve of. Nevertheless, God still speaks this prophecy through him. So that tells us, and this has significance to us in the church today, that God can work through the office of an appointed religious leader, even if the man himself is flawed. God still works through that office, even if the man makes wrong decisions, and in fact is even quite sinful, God still speaks through them. Verse 53, from that day they were determined to kill him. So whereas earlier in the Gospel of John there have been pockets of Jewish leaders that have tried to kill him, now it's the entire Sanhedrin that wants to kill him, which is the highest religious office in the land, and they're planning to kill him. Verse 54, so Jesus no longer went about openly among the Jews, so he no longer does a whole lot of public ministry in Jerusalem, and he leaves the district for a town called Ephraim in the country bordering on the desert. We're not entirely sure where this is, but it's probably in the northern desert region of Judea, probably only a couple of days' journey uh, from Jerusalem. And you can look that up on a map of Jesus' time, where Ephraim probably was. It's north and slightly east of Jerusalem, up in the hill area. And he stayed there with his disciples. 
So apparently Jesus doesn't do ministry there. He just stays there for a little while. Not sure entirely how long. But verse 55, the very next thing that happens, the Jewish Passover drew near. So Passover happens every year on the 14th of Nisan, according to the Jewish calendar. And all Jews were required to go up to Jerusalem for this feast once a year. This is the third Passover that's mentioned in the Gospel of John, and it's the last one. So we're getting towards the end of Jesus' life. By the way, the year we're probably talking about here, we're probably in AD 33. That seems to be the most likely year that Jesus died. Many of the country people who had gone up to Jerusalem to purify themselves. So um, at that particular time period, just before Passover, it was expected that Jews would come up and do purification rituals in Jerusalem. So there were these mikvah pools that people were, that Jewish people were required to bathe in seven days before Passover. So all the Jews in Israel are coming up to Jerusalem to purify themselves in these mikvah pools. And there's some that have survived to this day that you can go and look at, these really cool pools. And in fact, this is a prefigurement of baptism. They were essentially doing a kind of baptism on themselves to get ready for Passover. And the reason they have to do that is because they have to be ritually pure in order to celebrate the Passover. And that's in Numbers chapter 9. It spells out the requirement to purify yourself seven days before Passover. So probably what's happening here is large crowds from all over Israel are traveling to Jerusalem in these big groups for the purification. So that means we're seven days out from Passover So we're about seven days away from Jesus' death at this point. The Gospel of John starts to wrap up pretty quickly um, from this point onwards. So the people in Jerusalem that are coming for the feast are looking out for Jesus. By now, everyone knows Jesus. They want to see him. They probably want to see a miracle. And they say to one another as they stood about in the temple, What do you think? Will he come to the festival or not? And of course, earlier in John, there was some debate about whether Jesus was going to come to another festival. So they're asking the same question, is Jesus going to come? So as a Jew, they're expecting that he's going to come, but they haven't seen him yet. He seems to be pretty hidden at this point. Now, the very next, that's the end of our passage today. But the very next verse, verse 57, says that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should inform them so that they might arrest him. So that's another reason why everyone is looking out for Jesus. If anyone sees Jesus, they're under strict orders to tell the Sanhedrin straight away. So where does this um, John chapter 11 passage appear in the Catechism? Let's take a look at a few interesting verses. So paragraph 596 is in the section about the divisions among the Jewish authorities about Jesus. It says the religious authorities in Jerusalem were not unanimous about what stance to take towards Jesus. The Pharisees threatened to excommunicate his followers. To those who feared that everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. The high priest Caiaphas replied by prophesying, It is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. So that particular paragraph of the Catechism is a commentary essentially on John chapter 11, and it's just summarizing the events that occurred in the lead up to Jesus' death. Then we get these interesting references in paragraph 58 and 60, which are a commentary on, remember in our passage where it says God wants to gather together all the scattered children of Israel. 
So really early in the Catechism, paragraph 58 and paragraph 60, there's a commentary on God's plan for the Gentiles, for the non-Jewish people. So in the section on the covenant with Noah and also the covenant with Abraham, it says the covenant with Noah remains in force during the times of the Gentiles until the universal proclamation of the gospel. The Bible venerates several great figures among the Gentiles, Abel the just, the kingdom priest Melchizedek, a figure of Christ, and the upright Noah, Daniel, and Job. Scripture thus expresses the heights of sanctity that can be reached by those who live according to the covenant of Noah, waiting for Christ to, quote, gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, unquote. The people descended from Abraham would be the trustee of the promise made to the patriarchs, the chosen people, called to prepare for that day when God would gather all his children into the unity of the church. They would be the root to which the Gentiles would be grafted once they came to believe. So that last part there tells us that the flock which Jesus desires to gather all people into through his death on the cross is the church. That is the place that Jesus has gathered people to as a result of his death on the cross. So there's some really interesting, cool links there to early in the catechism. Then we go to paragraph 706, which is a commentary on a similar sort of thing about Abraham. It says, Against all human hope, God promises descendants to Abraham as the fruit of faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. In Abraham's progeny, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The progeny will be Christ himself, in whom the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will, quote, gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So you can see that that verse gets a lot of attention in the Catechism. That is God's ultimate plan for the world, to gather all people scattered abroad into the church. And then in paragraph 2793, which is a commentary on the Our Father line, says the baptized cannot pray to Our Father without bringing before him all those for whom he gave his beloved Son. God's love has no bounds, neither should our prayer. Praying our Father opens us opens to us the dimensions of his love revealed in Christ. Praying with and for all those who do not yet know him, so that Christ may, quote, gather into one the children of God. So once again, we hear that particular verse. So it has been quite significant in developing Catholic theology. So this verse from what we heard today in John chapter 11. So that's our exegesis for today. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you're getting something out of it, please consider becoming a patron. There's a whole lot of exclusive benefits which are available to you if you would prayerfully consider partnering financially with the ministry. And the link for more information is in the show notes. Please continue to share this podcast around, subscribe on YouTube, and we'll see you again tomorrow.